Good morning and greetings in Jesus' name this morning. I uh, thought it was interesting when Darren mentioned how time seems to be flying for him. I have a theory for you, Darren. It seems like whenever you have a job to do in church, suddenly you begin to count time by when it's your turn to do it next. At least that's the way it is for me. So I count time by every third Sunday right now. So, so anyway, here we are. I, uh, I will say, um, I think it was Darren or Delvin talked about encouraging each other. And uh, I want to say that I am glad that the devotional leader and the Sunday school teacher does take time to prepare, and I encourage you to keep doing that, and um, I had to wonder how it would be if we just all kind of came and would see what would happen this morning, you know, how, how that would go. Probably not so well. Anyway, enough for that. Um, turn with me, if you would, to John 12. I don't know if you've ever had the experience, I'm sure you probably have, of uh, an opportunity that availed itself to you, whatever that would be. And it was an opportunity that it was either you did it or you missed it, and you probably would never have the opportunity again. And so you're, you're faced with the decision, um, am I going to take that opportunity and do this thing? Am I going to go see this thing? Am I going to go do this particular activity, whatever it may be? That's somewhat what we have here in John 12, uh, verse 20. We have... Uh, we have some certain Greeks it talks about here, and we're going to just read this, and then we'll come back and just comment, it, comment on it just a little bit more. We'll read verses 20 through 35, but these Greeks here were, um, had an opportunity. They took the opportunity, and we're going to uh, see if we can learn some lessons from these folks today. There were certain Greeks among them that came up to worship at the feast. The same came, therefore, to Philip which was of the said of Galilee, and desired him, saying, Sir, we would see Jesus. Philip cometh and telleth Andrew, and again Andrew and Philip tell Jesus. And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone, and if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. He that loveth his life shall lose it, and he that hateth his life in the world shall keep it unto life eternal. If any man serve me, let him follow me. Where I am, there also shall my servant be. If any man serve me, him will my father honor. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. For this cause came I unto this hour. Father, glorify thy name. Then came there a voice from heaven, saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. The people, therefore, that stood by and heard it, Said, un, said that it thundered. Others said, an angel spoke to him, to him. Jesus answered and said, This voice came not because of me, but for your sakes. Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. This he said, signifying what death he should die. The people answered him, We have heard out of the law that Christ abideth forever, and how sayest thou, the Son of Man shall be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? Jesus said unto them, Yet a little while is the light with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness come upon you, for he that walketh in darkness knoweth not whither he goeth. While you have the light, believe in the light, that ye may, have, that ye may be the children of light. 
These things spake Jesus and departed and did hide himself from them. So a little backdrop to this setting here. If you remember with me, um, we have Jesus journeying to Jerusalem to observe the Passover. We have the account at the beginning of chapter 12 where he came to the house of Lazarus, it said, and he had this supper with Mary and Martha, Lazarus, and we looked at that, some of the things that took place there. And then in verses 9 through 19, we have the account of what we know of as the triumphal entry. And so we have two um, somewhat, and I should just mention just prior to this, we have the account of Lazarus being raised from the dead. So we have a number of things happening here in Jesus' life that no doubt were published abroad, you might say. I'm sure that these particular events that were taking place weren't done under a under a bushel somewhere. People knew about them. So that's, the, that's somewhat the background. It's interesting that just prior to verse 20, the verse we started out reading, when the Pharisees were wringing their hands and talking to each other, they say, behold, the whole world has gone after this man. And the very next verse, we have these certain Greeks. Indeed, the whole world had gone after this man. The Greeks were desiring to see this man. So who were these Greeks? We maybe um, will try to get a little bit of a context here of of who we're talking about and what the circumstances were. It says these Greeks had come to the Passover or had come to worship uh, at the Feast of the Passover. There's there's three uh, thoughts on who these Greeks might be. Um, Perhaps they were Jews that spoke, spoke the Greek language. That's one idea. Uh, Perhaps they were uh, Greek proselytes. That's another idea. But interestingly enough, in those days, there were actually pagans that would come to these feasts, these bigger events, and they would bring an offering to the god Jehovah. It's kind of a strange thing, but uh, I guess uh, from what I could pick up, this was actually the case. You would have actually pagans coming there to bring their oblations to the Jewish god. It's interesting that... um, this seemed to increase, this, um, this thing of these Greeks coming to worship, or these Gentiles coming to worship the temple periodically, that phenomenon seemed to increase as, um, as the end of the Old Testament age drew to a close. Um, I'm no authority on this, but that's what I picked up. And it's perhaps somewhat of a prelude to the middle wall of partition being broken down that Paul talks about later. Anyway, that's interesting. It seems like consensus would be, among people that know much more than I, that these were probably Greek proselytes. These were probably people that had, uh, to one degree or another, had embraced the Jewish religion. I also found it interesting that there was two classes of proselytes. You had what was known of as the proselytes of the gate and the proselytes of righteousness. So the difference between the two classes were the proselytes of the gate were not circumcised people. They were uh, people that were not required to keep the Mosaic law, and they did not practice the the ceremonial law. But they were bound to conform to a few uh, basic uh, rules, I guess you'd say. And this is what these rules were. They had to abstain from idolatry, blasphemy, bloodshed, uncleanness, and the eating of blood, theft, and yield to the obedience of the authorities. 
Besides this, they had to abstain from work on Sabbath and refrain from the use of leavened bread during the Passover. So that was kind of their, um, kind of the bottom line they had to live up to, these proselytes of the gate. This term comes from uh, Exodus. If you remember uh, with me, there's different times in the mosaic or the, the, the books of Moses, uh, especially Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, and Numbers, where it talks about the stranger that is within your gate. Okay, so that, that term was these folks that were still Gentiles, but they were within the gate, and they had to live up to just a certain criteria. Think of me, there's different people in the Old Testament that, were, that are named that probably fit into this camp, such as Doag the Edomite, Uriah the Hittite, you remember him, Arana the Jebusite, Zelak the Ammonite, and Ebedmelech the Ethiopian. These, some of these names are more familiar than others, but these folks were probably what, what came to be known as proselytes of the gate. As far as what was known as proselytes of righteousness, these were folks that went through the whole nine yard to become full-fledged um, Jews, I guess you could say that. But they, they, had, uh, they were accepted into the full Jewish economy. And um, so they were members of the synagogue in full communion, you could say. All right, so that's, that's the difference between the two types of proselytes, as I understand it. Scholars would guess that these folks were of the former uh, class that I talked about, not your full communing member in the community. Okay, so Jesus at this point, whenever these Greeks come, is in the temple, and these Greeks arrive at the temple. So now it would be helpful to understand a little bit the layout of the temple and just exactly what was taking place here when these, when these Greeks arrived. I'm going to attempt a, a small drawing here, just so you get an idea. Let's see if I can trip what I'm doing here. So if you have the temple here, Or the temple courtyard, I should say, or not even that. But anyway, this is kind of a schematic here. So you have the the uh, the building, the temple, right here, and then out around the temple itself was what was called the court of the priests. Okay, so that area there, only the priests could enter. Okay, then you had. Um, well, I, I'm wrong about that. I missed one. So here's your temple in here, and here is your court of the priests around here. I'm sorry about that. I missed one. In here, you're, you can only enter if you're a priest. Around the, around the outside of that, we have what was known as the court of Israel. And if you were a Jewish man, you could enter into that. The, the bigger part of the temple proper here was what was known as the court of women, right here. And this is probably where Jesus was sitting uh, conversing whenever these Greeks arrived. You could go into this court, this court of women, if you were a, a Jewish man in full communion or a Jewish woman, but you could not go into the court of men if you were a woman. So you were kind of, um, you were kind of, uh, that's as far as you could go. But in here a lot of activity took place, and there was um, what we would call offering plates in here, 13 offering baskets around here, probably the place where Jesus was whenever the he watched the, uh, the woman cast in her mites. That's, that's where that was. 
probably the place where he did a lot of his teaching. A lot of activity in the court of the women. But it was barred if you were a Gentile. If you were a Gentile, you could, you could not be into that. So then outside of this area, on both sides, we have a, another area. This side is the courtyard. And there's th this, this gets to be somewhat of a... Um, Oh, I don't know. Di different things took on. Some of the, um, of the buying and selling, uh, some of the cleansing of the temple, probably the courtyard was involved in that. On this side, you had a place that was divided into two sections. You had the royal porch up here, and you had then what was known as the court of the Gentiles down here. So if you follow this, there's four courts. Court of the Gentiles, which is far, as far as these Greeks could go, they could go no further. Then if you were a Jewish woman, you could enter into this court of the women. If you were a Jewish man, you could go into the court of Israel, it was called. And if you were a priest, then you could go into the court of the priests. And then if you were a high priest, you could go into the Holy of Holies. So you, you had this, this stair step sort of thing as, uh, as far as where you could and could not go if you were, uh, depending on where you fit in the, uh, in the Jewish um, um, economy, I guess. So now there's, there's an interesting thing right here where you entered into the, into the court of women from the court of Gentiles. There was literally a, a sign hung there that said, if you're a Gentile and you cross this, you will be killed. I mean, I, I don't know if it was quite that blunt, but that you got the message. You could not. You dared not. This is why in Acts 21, whenever the rabble-rousers said Paul took a Greek into the temple, that's what he was being accused of, taking an uncircumcised Greek and entering into the court of women. And Paul said, oh, I didn't do that. But that's what they were accusing him of, and that's why they wanted to kill Paul. So in this court of the Gentiles, uh, it was meant to be a place for these Gentiles to worship. That would, that would have been the initial in, intent of this area. However... As time moved on, things became more corrupt, and um, things that perhaps should have taken place in the courtyard began to filter over here into the worship area, and that's where you had the money changers and these types of folks being set up whenever Jesus cleansed the temple. It's, it's also uh, informative to understand exactly what these money changers and so on did here. Uh, when, when you came to worship at the Feast of the Passover annually, you were exacted what was called a temple tax. This tax was a shekel. So you had to, I'm sorry, half a shekel. So you had to give a half a shekel. Every Jewish male over 20 years of age gave a, gave a half a shekel when he came to, to worship. And this was for the maintenance of the temple proper and the, the things that needed to be done to take care of the temple throughout the year. Now, as things deteriorated, as things tend to, as apostasy sets in, um, they got tired of dealing with all these half shekels, so they decided uh, it, you should give one shekel. Two of you should band together and give one shekel, just less money to deal with. However, if you give a half a shekel, if that's, you know, for some reason I come there and I didn't, you know, Warren didn't buddy up with me to split the shekel or whatever, and I only have the half a shekel, then I would be exacted something like 8% interest, some sort of a, what would you call that, a, a, a bank fee, all right? So not only would I have to give my half shekel, I would now have to give one Roman denarii, which is about 8% on my money, uh, because of the hassle of dealing with this half shekel, all right? It's like ATM charges. I just hate those things, you know? So, but they had no, there was no way out of it. That, that's the way it was. 
The other thing that happened is whenever folks would bring their, their offerings to, um, to the temple, it seems like the, the uh, priests and the folks that were in charge of, of the worship there in the, uh, in that, in the temple uh, got, very, um, got very good at condemning sacrifices, you know, calling out blemishes, even, even quite improperly. And so what these folks would, that brought their lamb or their pigeon or whatever would come with this thing and, it would, and they would be denied this, uh, this thing because it was blemished. And they would be forced to buy a sacrifice from these vendors that were selling animals. And so people just would end up not bringing the sacrifice. I mean, what's the, what's the use? Let's just go buy one there because, you know, they got the good ones there. And, of course, they would take advantage of this. The vendors would and they would charge more than they should for the sacrifices. You're starting to get the picture here. This court of the Gentiles was supposed to be a place of worship. And what do we have? We have something on the the, uh, par of a combination of the New York Stock Exchange, an auction barn, a flea market, and a money exchanging service. That's pretty much what we have. And, and, And the Gentiles are supposed to worship here. Okay? Is it any wonder that in Mark 11:17, Jesus said, Is it not written, My house shall be called of all nations, catch that, of all nations, the house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. When one considers at least what bordered on extortion and money laundering that took place in a place that was supposed to be a place for all nations to worship, you can, you can somewhat understand the indignation that Christ must have had when he walked into that temple, and that's what he saw. So, now let's, let's put the, the picture together. We have what is called proselytes of the gate, halfway Jews, not quite fitting in, and they're supposed to uh, come and worship in a place, and we're dodging cow pies. Really. That's what, that's what we're doing. So we have a person that really doesn't fit anywhere, and he comes to worship in a very substandard environment. Would you blame these folks for looking for something better, these Greeks? I think that's what they were doing here when they came to Philip and said, Sir, sir, we would see Jesus. So let's look at their approach a little bit. They came to Philip. Now, it's interesting, if, if all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable, it's interesting some of these details that we have, and a person has to wonder why. Some of it we can only guess at, but um, I would like to just take a look at Philip a little bit, why they perhaps approached Philip. Right away, we understand that Philip had a Greek name. So there were, they perhaps uh, even knew Philip from their hometown, perhaps. We know that, that Philip was from Bethsaida. And there's a very good possibility that these Greeks were from that same area, just in Phoenicia, just to the northeast of, um, of Bethsaida. Very good possibility that that's where they were from. It could be that they were even acquainted with Philip, possibly. Uh, we don't know that. It could be perhaps Philip was the first one they ran into, and Providence would have it that, what do you know, he's a Greek from Bethsaida. But um, be that as it may, they ran into Philip. Very likely, Jesus is in the next court <coughs> speaking, and so they couldn't go in there because of the um, death threat hanging over the, the uh, temple gate there. 
So they had to get somebody that could go into this court and round up Jesus. I think it's interesting that Philip has a reputation throughout Scripture of being an evangelist. Think about his initial call. As soon as Jesus called him, he went to Nathaniel and he said, Nathaniel, we found the Christ. Come have a look. In Acts 6, Philip is selected as meeting the criteria of a deacon. He was full of the Holy Ghost and he had the ability to serve people. He had the ability to recognize a need. In Acts 8, we have Philip going to Samaria to preach the gospel. And by the way, a place that was viewed as lowlifes and second-class citizens. And then while he's there, he's sent into the wilderness to find the Ethiopian and share the gospel with him. That man wanted to see Jesus too. In Acts 21, we have Philip entertaining Paul and his missionary company as they're journeying. And it mentions, interestingly enough, that Philip had four daughters and they all prophesied. I think Philip had probably introduced those folks to Jesus. In John 14, Philip, we won't look at that a lot today, but in John 14, Philip has a request. that He said, Jesus, he said, show us the Father, and we're happy. It suffices us. Even though it seems like Jesus somewhat reprimanded Philip for his request, I want to say that Philip had a longing to know Jesus more than he did, to know the Lord more than he did. A deeper communion. He was just slightly confused on how to go about that and what he actually saw. So these folks approach Philip. What does Philip do? Does he say, hang on a second, I'll go get Jesus, bring him out, and we can talk. It's interesting that he goes and he finds Andrew. And he has, I would guess, that he tells Andrew that, um, what these Greeks had requested of him. Well, why this detail? Well, we, we also know that Philip or Andrew was from the town of Philip, from, um, from Bethsaida. And it seems that Andrew was perhaps, um, we often think of the inner three as Peter, James, and John, but there is an account where Andrew is mentioned as part of that inner circle as well. It also seems that Andrew could be a man that could think, think on his feet, you might say. Um, whenever, uh, when Jesus was feeding the 5,000, and Jesus turned to Philip and he said, Philip, find some food for these people. Immediately, it was Andrew that came along and said, we have the lunch. We can use the lunch here. And I wonder if that didn't impress Philip. I wonder if he didn't think, you know, this is a man that can think in time of crisis. I'm, I'm, uh, I, I need a little help here. I need, uh, I need Andrew's opinion. This is just a guess. I, this is not um, at all insp- you know, inspired from Scripture. These are some thoughts I have here. Perhaps. Perhaps that's the case. It could also be that Philip was a little bit skeptical about bringing these Greeks, interrupting Jesus to bring these Greeks to him. He might have been thinking back to the time in Matthew 10, whenever Jesus sent the 12 out, and he said, don't bother to go to the way of the Gentiles. He says, um, don't go into any city of Samaria or the way of the Gentiles, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And in Matthew 15, whenever the woman from Canaan come imploring Jesus about her daughter, Jesus said, I'm not sent, I am not sent, but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. I wonder if, if Philip was perhaps a little confused. You know, Jesus is in here in the court of the women talking to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. 
is that more important? Should I bother him and bring him out to these Greeks? Andrew, I need your opinion on that. Well, we, we really don't have anything about what happened with that initial um, introduction or bringing the Greeks and Jesus together. We can only conclude that it happened, and we're just, uh, we just don't have the nuances of how that all took place. Because in verse 23 it says, And Jesus answered them. And I'm going to conclude that those them were the Greeks that came to see Jesus. So what does Jesus tell these Greeks? I summarized it in four points. And you may have broken this down differently. But I see four things coming out here in these next few verses. He tells them, number one, that his hour is now here. Now think about how different that is from Christ's message heretofore. Before, in the book of John, you'd have it often said, his hour had not yet come. Jesus now says, this is my hour. And he says, my glorification will be in what looks like complete defeat. And he says, I want you to take notice of that because I want you to, to do the same thing. I think the takeaway is, that honor only comes from service. And you Greeks need to know that. You need to serve. It's so contrary to the way it feels it should be, but it's the way it should be. Our world honors those who, I should say, the world tends to see it the other way around. If you're an honorable person, you should be served. Christ says, if you're an honorable person, you should serve. In verse 27 to 29, Jesus admits that this hour that is here has his heart troubled. He's troubled. He's troubled by that. But he sees that to do the will of God is the only way to this glorification. And he actually says, I see the folly in asking for deliverance. He says, what should I say? Father, deliver me from this hour? He said, for this hour I was come. The next lesson I see is um, all men, in verse 32, including, including these Greeks, can find deliverance from the grip of the devil through Jesus' death. I wonder if that was at all music to the ears of these Greeks. Think about what we talked about earlier. No longer, a day was coming not too far hence, that these Greeks would no longer be subjected to barnyard worship. They wouldn't. They, they could worship God equally as their Jewish counterparts, and that day was not too far in the distance. In verse 34 to 36, the uh, conversation seems to shift to exactly what Jesus meant by his statement of the Son of Man being lifted up. And Jesus pointedly goes back to what seems to be a favorite theme in the book of John, that if you seek light, you will find it. In other words, you want to understand what I mean by this? You stay tuned. If you want to know, you'll find out. And praise the Lord, it's still that way today. It seems like the process of searching lends itself to the reality of finding. And that's where we see these Greeks. Sir, we would see Jesus. And it seems to me Jesus is saying, you're doing the right thing. You're looking at the right place. Keep looking. So what's the takeaway? What can we learn from this little encounter of the Greeks and Jesus that maybe could help us today? I have a few things here that I would like you to consider. 
We must have an interest in seeing Jesus if we're ever going to find him. You know, we don't really try to find anything too hard if we have no interest in seeing it. If it doesn't interest you, why, why would you try to find it, you know? I had to think back in 19, I think it was 1986. Um, I looked it up yesterday online and this is what I found. But I remember the, the event, I just don't remember the exact date, that uh, Halley's Comet was going to be visible from the naked eye. Anybody remember that, Halley's Comet? Did you see it? Actually, I wanna, if, I, if my memory serves me correctly, I think the clouds were in the way that particular night I tried to see it. I couldn't see it, if, I, if my memory serves me correctly. Anyway, but I do remember going out and trying to look for it. That I do remember. But I had to be interested in seeing Halley's Comet. Part of the uh, reason that I was interested in that is because I will be 89 the next time that thing shows up again. And so even if I'm living, the odds of me being in a state of mind and having the eyesight to go out and look at this thing is rather dim. Rather dim. Warren probably won't even make it that long. 2061. So, yeah, um, it interested me. That's the point I want to make. It interested me. So I went out and I looked for it. Have you ever desperately wanted to try to find something? You lost something. You want to find it. And this thing's important to you. How did you look for it? I would guess quite diligently. It's interesting to me as I reflected over Jesus' life. At the beginning of his life, the wise men, wise men came and searched diligently for the young child. All right? They were instructed of Herod actually to do that. Go search diligently for that young man. And when you have found it, come and tell me too. We know that story. But what those wise men went through to see Jesus, we, we don't know. But we can assume it probably was um, a little more than jumping into our car and driving a few miles to see that. We know that. They went to great lengths. It was important to them. Consider Zacchaeus. When he wanted to see Jesus... Climbing up the tree, all the things he had to do to see Jesus. Consider the blind man of Jericho that he wanted desperately to re receive his sight. So he's crying out, Jesus, have mercy on me. And they're saying, be quiet, don't bother him. And it says he cried out the more, Jesus, have mercy on me. In Jeremiah, the prophet tells us that ye shall seek me and find me when you search with me with all your heart. You know, you have to begin the search if you're ever going to find. Jesus says in Matthew 7, Ask, and it shall be given. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. And the Hebrew writer tells us that God is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. That's what these, that's what these Greeks were doing. Let's take a lesson from that. I also could not help but notice the respect and the humility that these, Cre these Greeks had when they approached Philip. They said, sir, could we see Jesus? It doesn't sound like a demanding um, question. It sounds very respectful. It's, I, I get a sense of humility and respect from that question, the wording of that question. And I think there's, a, I think there's something we can learn from this too. You know, it says in the book of um, Proverbs, I think, that God, I'm sorry, it's in Peter. God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. 
You know, if we're going to find God, if we're going to find Jesus, there has to be some humility. God has a real sense of nausea toward people that are proud. Approach Jesus with humility and grace. All right, another thing we can learn. We have to desire a personal interview with Jesus when we go to see Jesus. Um, The word see here carries that idea of an interview. In other words, they were saying, Philip, we would like to interview Jesus. We'd like to have a deep discussion with him. We'd like to talk about more than just surface issues. We'd really like to know this person. You know, Philip, you could actually tell us something about Jesus. We could sit down and talk to you, but we'd really like to talk to Jesus. Uh, Perhaps they could have stood around the corner and just watched. I'm sure Jesus would eventually came into the court of the Gentiles, and they could have observed and listened. But no, they wanted time out with Jesus. They wanted to sit down and discuss some things with him. Is there a lesson here for us? Are we too satisfied sometimes with third-party encounters or something that's quick, easy to digest, and we're on our way? Or do we really, really desire the interview with Jesus? I hope we do. But sometimes I think we're way too prone to go to follow around the easy-to-listen-to speakers, to read the easy-to-understand books, and to listen to our favorite radio broadcasts, whenever Jesus would desire, we actually pick up his book and have a real sit-down with it. Let's cultivate this art of conversation with Jesus and expose ourselves to his words and to those people that we sometimes think are difficult to understand or hard to follow. Another lesson we can learn from this account is we cannot allow our circumstances to keep us from seeing Jesus. And I go back to what I started out with. When you consider who these Greeks were and where they worshipped, would you blame them if they said, you know, things have deteriorated to such a point in that temple, I don't feel like dodging cow pies one more time. We're just going to stay home and we're going to worship God here in Phoenicia, where we are. We're not going to go down to that temple. It's such a long way and the circumstances are so terrible and it's so crowded and, you know, all the excuses they could have. But no, they were there and they wanted to see Jesus. I think, and this, we talked about this a little in our Sunday school lesson, we're experts at conjuring up reasons why our circumstances are the reason for our distance from Jesus. And you know what? We feel pretty good about them. And we believe they're completely legitimate. I think somebody mentioned this in our Sunday school lesson. I'm going to hammer the nail one more time. And maybe it's just because it bothers me, but it seems like in the last ten years, I've heard more emphasis, and it kind of goes back to what Mike was talking about in Sunday school. You know, the emphasis seems to have gone from worshiping God in the beauty of holiness and, and, and through his spirit growing in grace and, and, and desiring more holiness and being more like Jesus to excusing ourselves and saying, you know, I'm just a sinful man. I'm just a sinful man. So because I'm just a sinful man, I can't be expected to attain really anything. You know, God's just going to have to overlook some of my sinfulness. You know, there's an element of truth to that. But I fear 
I fear that that is what hampers us from seeing Jesus the way we should sometimes. Because we see ourselves as this sinful man that, you know what, Jesus is just going to have to accept that. And so we cease to grow in our spiritual walk. Or perhaps, uh, you've probably heard this one too, you know, my church is such a discouraging place. It's filled with such people, with such silly ideas. It's such a discouraging place. If only I went to a better church. You know, I think I could see Jesus better then. Well, that's probably right. Your, your church probably is filled with people with silly ideas. And you know what? I'm one of those people with silly ideas. If you go to that church, it's probably where you fit. It's probably somewhat of a self-indictment. Or perhaps you think your job or your financial situation keeps you from seeing Jesus. It could be a million things. But as I mentioned before, we're good at conjuring them up and we're good at making them look legitimate. And I'm happy that we have a lesson from these Greeks that, you know what, barnyard or no barnyard, we're going to the temple and we're going to worship God. Lay those excuses aside. Another lesson we can learn Let's be willing to acknowledge that at times we need help to see Jesus. We need a Philip. We need to ask Philip, Sir, can we see Jesus? These Greeks couldn't get into the court of the women. They needed Philip's help, and we need help too sometimes. I think we'd all be willing to admit, I'm sure we would be, that none of us has a utopia on understanding the Bible or the teaching of the Bible to the point that we have no more to learn. We have reached utopia. There's no more for us to learn. We know that's not true. And we also know that that's why God instituted the church. So that believers could strengthen the weak parts of his brother. Paul puts it so well in Ephesians, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, making increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. If you sit down and you ponder that verse for 15 minutes, there is a mouthful there. There is a mouthful. Could it be that perhaps the body is not increasing the way it should because parts of the body are unwilling to avail themselves of other parts of the body to have that increase? It's, when, when you think of it practically, you, you see the folly of it. What if the hand decided it wasn't going to feed the mouth anymore? How would that work? Well, you know, it's the foot's turn. Now, it can be done. I've seen people feed themselves with feet, but it's not really where I want to go if I don't have to. may have to sometime, but I would hope not. You get the point. On your quest, on my quest for Jesus, when I go to see Jesus, am I willing to consider that I may need my brother's help in that process? Am I willing to consider that his ideas might be what I need? Am I willing to consider those ideas, even though they conflict with what, I, with what I see? Am I willing to at least consider it? I trust we are. Another thing we can learn, when we go to see Jesus, we had better be willing to accept what he has for us then. If you go to that, to that bother be willing to accept what he has to share. It would be interesting if these Greeks asked some questions that prompted the response from Jesus. It would seem to me perhaps that that happened. Perhaps they had some questions. Um, you know, maybe, maybe they asked him, 
uh, you know, Jesus, when is, when is your hour? You, you say your hour's not come. When is your hour? And he tells him, my hour is come. It's here. I don't know what they asked him, and I don't know what, what prompted Jesus to give the response that he did. But this I know, and you know it too, that Greeks tended to be scholarly and uh, sophisticated. Do you suppose the things they heard here fit their scholarly, sophisticated view of life? I'm willing to bet not. Um, Paul in 1 Corinthians says, But we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block, and unto the Greeks foolishness. Well, it's hopeful that these Greeks had uh, progressed in their spiritual journey to the point that it perhaps didn't seem like foolishness. But it could have. It could have seemed like foolishness to them. This is not an uncommon thing for Jesus' teachings to be foolishness. We see it everywhere. And we have many examples of it in the Bible. You'll remember with me when we looked at John 6, whenever many of the disciples heard what Jesus had to say about the bread of life in John 6. And they said, this is a hard saying. And it says from that time on, his disciples went back and, not, and walked no more with him. That's, that's sad. That's a very sad commentary. They heard what they needed to hear, but they said, we don't really like it. We're going to leave it. You and I both know that we live in times of rampant disregard for the heart's I'm sorry, in rampant disregards for the, for the heart of Jesus' teaching. And let's be honest enough that there's enough carnality in each of us. There's a part of us that probably some point or another, you know, says backs up and looks at the Bible and says, really? Is that really what it means? Is that really for me? And we like to bend things just enough to fit what we want rather than taking the Scripture as it gives it. In Matthew 24, when Jesus is giving the, um, he's giving some warnings about the last days, he says, there's going to be a time when if it were possible, the very elect will be deceived. The very elect are you and me, folks. We're the very elect. And Jesus says it's possible for us to be deceived. I think it's, it's helpful for us to sit up and take warning to that. The last thing I'd like to say is um, I'd like to encourage us to seek Jesus while there is opportunity. And I kind of talked about this before. You have windows of opportunity to see something, and you either take it or leave it. These Greeks came to the Passover, and they had a window of opportunity to talk to Jesus, and they were bound and determined to get that done. There's a real warning in Scripture that that same principle applies to us. When you have the opportunity, do it. Take the opportunity. And it seems like Jesus' teaching on light when he was talking to these Greeks would be informative for us too. It seems like Jesus' teaching is when you have light, follow that light. And the more you follow that light, the more light you will have. If, on the other hand, you have light, you disregard the light, it's going to get really, really dark. The light you even have will be taken away and your darkness will be great. If you would take the book of John as a whole and you would look at how many times Jesus talks about following the light and what happens if you do and what happens if you don't, that seems to be a summary of what he has to say. 
So, where are you at, you and I at today? Do you believe in the light? Do I believe in the light? I'm happy that I think I've met with a group of people here today that are walking in the light, and they want more of it. I'm uh, satisfied that that's the group of people I'm speaking to today. So I leave you with this. Do you find yourself among the certain Greeks? I got to believe there was other Greeks there that day too. Um, I think that's a safe, safe assumption to come to. But the Bible says there were certain Greeks, just certain ones. Folks, you and I need to find ourselves among that class of the certain. Certain Greeks that are saying, Sir, we'd like to speak to Jesus.